Survivor chronicles the lives of 18 strangers stranded together in the middle of nowhere, forced to build and destroy their own new world. Over the course of several weeks, these island-dwelling men and women are locked in a physically and mentally exhausting battle to outwit, outplay, and outlast each other, voting each other out every three days at the terrible temple known as Tribal Council. After 39 days, one of these castaways will walk away as the sole survivor, in possession of the million-dollar prize that goes along with the coveted title. After only three days, one survivor will walk away from years of dreaming about this journey. Months and months of surviving a grueling casting process. Weeks and weeks of preparation for the game. Days and days on lockdown. And the guarantee of more than a month away from everything and everyone they know and love no matter how early they lose their life in the game, all for only three days of actual playtime. This podcast is the story of finding this season's first sacrifice to the fearsome survivor gods. This is First One Out. Survivor, Season 1, Day 2 Sonia Christopher and Richard Hatch sit together on Tagi Beach, on the island of Pulau Tiga, in Borneo. One of them is on a collision course with their million-dollar destiny. One of them is about to make history of her own. It's not Richard's birthday, so thankfully he's wearing appropriate attire, but he receives a gift anyway. The gift of song. Sonia, 63 years old at the time, hailing from Walnut Creek, California, carried a ukulele with her all the way from America to Malaysia, her lone luxury item and comfort from home, an instrument of familiarity in a strange and foreign land. Speaking with me on the phone almost two decades later, Sonia remembers the moment she first strummed those strings on a survivor beach with crystal clarity. Were you the entertainer of Toggy Beach? No, I didn't want to push myself on that. But one one day, uh, Rich and I were in camp alone. And uh, so I don't know whether he asked me about it or what, but uh, I pulled it out, and that was filmed, where I sang the parody to, uh, or what I called the therapist version of Bye Bye Blues. It's a song, Bye Bye Blues. Life is hell, but I'm swell. Bye, bye, blues. Do you, and, uh, do you still remember that one? I do, maybe. Let's see. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, bye, bye, blues. Bye, bye, blues. Thanks to Prozac. Bye, bye, blues. Give me Paxil. Sonia laughs at her own performance, and laughs at the long-ago memory. It reignites another memory for Sonia, now 80 years old, several songs removed from that day on the beach. 
that's uh, an, an irony there, you know, because being the first one voted off, I was the loser, right? And Rich uh, was the winner, and he won the million dollars. Well, um, uh, when I was being uh, going through the selection process, I was asked what I would do with the million dollars if I won it. And I uh, happened to be on the board of uh, the, our church uh, at that point, and we had just finished building a new sanctuary, but had run out of money to build the fellowship hall or social hall. So I was very into into that aspect in my own personal life, and so I said, "Well, I would, um, I would build, or I give the money to the church to build a social hall." Well, um, now f- fast forward to my surprise when this was all over, uh, I I was given a booby prize of twenty five hundred dollars. People were given uh, stipends. The longer you were on the island, the bigger it was. And um, so, uh, anyway, I, I'm, I don't talk, I don't know what they do now, but uh, anyway, I got this $2,500. So I decided to put my money where my mouth was, and uh, I started a building fund for this fellowship hall. Well, six years later, we were breaking ground for $1.6 million social hall because it started a building fund and then everybody gave to it and we did fundraisers and so forth. At the same time, Rich, Richard Hatch, was sitting in jail for not paying his taxes. And uh, I just thought that was very ironic, the, the, the loser versus the winner, but who came out ahead? <laughs> I, guess, I guess the story is pay your income tax. For The Hollywood Reporter... In collaboration with Rob Has a Podcast, I'm Josh Wiggler. And once upon a time, Sonia Christopher was the first one out. Chapter 5 Ancient Voices. Among the many reasons why Survivor still thrives is that it's built on the back of years and years of history, structurally rooted in almost two decades of purple rock solid material. Just to put it in numbers, as of season 35, 500 people have played Survivor across more than 500 episodes of the series. That's a lot of snuff torches. One of the 18 players on Survivor Heroes vs. Healers vs. Hustlers is destined to become the first one out of the season. But clearly, that person will not be the first first one out. He or she will become the 34th person in 35 seasons to lose their life in the game after only three days of playtime. And that's right, one person has been voted out first, twice. Francesca Hoagie, who was sent home first on Survivor Redemption Island and met that same fate once again four seasons later when she returned for Survivor Caramoan. I just felt like, well, it can't go worse than the first time. Like, that's impossible. So, um, you know, now I know what I'm getting myself into, and I'll just, I'll just do it, and I'll redeem myself, and, you know, it's going to be different this time. Like, um, I actually know some of the people that I'm playing with, like, Um, somebody say for my friends like it's gonna be fine 
And then, and then. And then dun, dun, dun. <laughs> given that there are fans who can recite the boot order of any given season, it shouldn't come as a surprise that there are fans who can name the first one out from any given season. Here, let's test it. Now presenting a spontaneous quiz hosted by my wife, the incredible neat lady known as Emily Fox, a farmer at heart who almost never watches Survivor because she doesn't like the show's depictions of chickens. Damn. Speaking of which, first one out from season 15, also chicken. Also damn. All right, Fox, quiz me. Season four. Season four is the Marquesa, so that would be Peter Harkey. He had a lot of holes. Season 23. Season 23 would be South Pacific, so that would be Semhar. Sorry, Semhar. Okay, season 11. Season 11, that would be the aforementioned Survivor Guatemala. Shout out to Jim Lynch once again, twice in this podcast. That's amazing. Season 31. Season 31 was second chance. I was there, Vetus Pushkowskis. It was very, very sad. Vetus was the first one out on his second season, Survivor Second Chance making him the mirror image of his brother, Aris Bushkowskis, the winner of Rourke Luskin's favorite season, Survivor Panama, Exile Island. As I mentioned to Emily, I was there the night Vetus was cast out in the middle of the Cambodian wilderness. It was the first tribal council I ever attended, and I was awestruck at the cosmic nature of the experience, not the least of which was because, just two days earlier, I had declared Vetus my winner pick for the season. So much for that. Vetus had already fought his way back onto Survivor, since Second Chance called upon fans to vote for the season's cast from a pool of previous players. In the aftermath of losing the war so decisively and so swiftly, Vetus was very public about his feelings on being a first boot. You used to say, I don't know if you still hold to it, uh, that if you knew that you were going to go out first, you wouldn't have done it at all. Like, Do you still feel that way, just like kind of philosophically about Survivor? If you're going to go home first, it's not worth going out and playing Survivor at all. Yeah, I still feel that way. I don't know why people wouldn't. I mean, so I, I've, I've seen some players refute that. How dare he say that? It's still worth it. I mean, no, man. Like, I, for maybe those people really have nothing going on in their lives. And, and okay, like, then that's not a diss to them. Like, okay, if really Survivor is that important to you, and don't get me wrong, I love Survivor. It's great. But I have a lot of other things happening in my life. So for me, to put everything on hold, to make my way out there, to, you know, to leave my son and tell him, hey, I'm not going to be back for this amount of time. And to take that break from my life for two and a half days a game, this is not worth it. And if you told me next time, hey, you, you, you get another opportunity to play, I would play. 100% I would play. But if you told me, hey, you're going out again, and there's a, you know, there's, there's a big chance you're going out first, like everybody's out to get you first, I don't know if I would play. But I know that that wouldn't be the situation, you know? We went out there, it's pretty even. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe the odds were because of my slightly villainous history from Blood versus Water that it was going to be toward me, but that's not a good shot at not going home first. And I think if I played again, I would still have a good shot at not going home first. But if you told me, hey, you get to play again, and there's a 50-50 shot, you're going home first. I don't know if I would do it, man. I mean, I, and I love Survivor. Don't get me wrong, dude. It's not so grateful for the opportunity. They've been great to me. But um, yeah, it's, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to go out there for two and a half days. I, I can... I, I do well enough in my life to take the trips I want to take. You know, I can travel the world. I'm fortunate to be successful in what I do, and I'd rather just take a vacation. Vetus was not the first castaway voted out in Cambodia. That distinction belongs to Darnell Hamilton of Survivor Korong, the 32nd season of Survivor in terms of when it was aired, but the 31st season of the show in terms of when it was filmed. 
weeks before the cast of Second Chance assembled in Cambodia. Darnell was a contestant on Survivor's second Brains vs. Beauty vs. Bronze season, and he was a member of the third tribe, the red-buffed Totong, representing Braun. Following a challenge mishap, and following an unprecedented Thai vote at that first tribal council, Darnell was sent home. He remembers the experience vividly, and he looks back on the experience as positively as he possibly can. When I was sitting there, I was just, it was a, it's a lot going through your mind. But um, my life has always been like that. Like things haven't necessarily went my way the first time or second time I do things. And then even when I talk, tell people I talk to some of the fans, but, you know, they say, oh, that's messed up. And if they, I say, you know what? You can't sit there and beat yourself over something that you can't control. Like I couldn't control. Like the thing and the way that I went out was like a freak accident. And I could either be upset about it, depressed about it the whole time, or I could move on. I look at things like, you know, because something doesn't work for you the first time or whatever, you never know what this does or how it affects something in the future. Like, I could say, oh, I regret this, I regret that, but I don't know what my future's like. Like, me going being the first person out has started a train reaction of a lot of things. And I don't know what, how everything is, so I can't really be upset about it. There are survivors who experienced massive success in the game before they suffered through a day three demise. Johnny Fairplay is one such example. He finished in third place on Survivor Pearl Islands and became a legendary reality TV villain due to his notorious dead grandmother lie. Almost 10 seasons later, he was the first one out on Survivor Micronesia. An even more extreme example, Tina Wesson, winner of the show's second season, Survivor the Australian Outback, Tina beat the full-tilt challenge beast cowboy Colby Donaldson by a single vote, a genuinely shocking outcome not just for many viewers, but for Tina herself. Well, Josh, I'll be honest with you. It's kind of funny because I was a big Colby fan. He was one of those people that he won. I don't You probably a know lot, if you're a big fan. A how lot. many challenges I think he won? He won like six or seven in a row. Yeah. And so whenever he would go on, let's say, a reward challenge, he would bring us back things like whenever he went to the Great Barrier Reef, he brought us back each a piece of coral. And it wasn't just a piece of coral. Uh, because I was a Tennessee fan, he brought back an orange one for me. Elizabeth, her favorite color was green, so he brought her a green one. So the fact that he knew us that well um, made that type of effort is what people fell in love with with Colby. So he really was, he was a great competitor. He was a great person, and I honestly felt like all of America would vote for him. And so I never, in that entire almost three months that the season was airing, not one time did I go to any sites or read any um, blog or post about who they thought would vote for who. And I personally did not feel like I would win, and I didn't even think about it. And so that's why whenever Jeff reveals, you know, it gets down to three to three, I was shocked that it was that close. And then whenever he revealed my name, that's why I kind of gave the Miss America, oh my gosh, look, because I wasn't prepared for that moment at all. Was it, it must have been shocking. How, when did shock turn into just like elation or were those, you know, hand in hand in that moment? Oh gosh, uh, it was elation, but maybe it was probably like 80-20, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and it's almost like 
I wish I could go back and relive a lot of those moments because I think I could handle them better now. And I don't know, I, 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 but I don't know, maybe it, it's good that I was as uh, green under the ears, so to speak, as I was because you at least get a whole lot of authenticity there. Whether or not it made for good television, I don't know. Tina returned to play Survivor six seasons later, during the show's first returning player edition, Survivor All-Stars. She was one of six members of the Saboga tribe, one of two season two veterans on the tribe alongside the once and future villain Jerry Manthe, and one of only two former winners on the tribe, alongside Mike Zahalski's favorite player of all time, Ethan Zahn. As someone who had already won Survivor, Tina recognized the target on her back instantly, even before she hit Saboga Beach. Well, uh, before I even went out on the season, when they asked if I wanted to play, I told them, I said, you know, unless you have all winners, you know that all the winners are going to be targeted. So is there any going to be, is there going to be any kind of fair play to this where all the winners are on the same tribe, at least, to give us a fighting chance? Um, So I recommended that type of, of game because I thought it would be the only way that I would have a chance. And um, so as soon as they showed us who our tribes were, I knew my name would be (laughs) right on the chopping block first thing, especially, you know, Jerry was on my season. I knew she'd be gunning for me. In addition to Ethan and Jerry, Tina's tribe mates included season one veterans Rudy Bosch and Jenna Lewis, as well as Pearl Island's pirate Rupert Boneham. The fulcrum vote at Saboga's first tribal council, as Tina remembers it. So you go out there and you're seeing all of these people and you get out onto that beach. How is it that you know that you're in trouble with this group of people on Saboga? Uh, well, because uh, Ethan and I are the only two winners on our tribe. And I know Jerry has a bone to pick with me. And Jerry and Jenna are good friends. So that leaves me Rupert or uh, Rudy on my tribe. And (laughs) Rudy was like this old curmudgeon and hard to kind of talk to. And he was just going with the rest of the folks. And so was Rupert. And I thought I might could get Rupert. I really did. And I'm going to say hats off to Ethan because, you know, we lost that very first challenge. And I'm like, oh, great. (laughs) You know, this is not looking good. And I thought if I could, I knew Ethan, or I thought I could talk Ethan into voting with me. And if I could get Rupert, then that would be three and three, right? Yeah, you could have tied it. Yeah. And so all I needed was Rupert. I didn't really need Rudy. And um, so I I really did all I could. But for some reason, um, Rudy kind of, I mean, Rupert felt that you know, getting off the winners was a good thing to do as well. So, and it, it, you know, to be honest, I would have done the same thing probably. Uh, we had our chance and and won, and so we need to let somebody else have a shot at it. So I would have done exactly the same thing. So, so I had no hard feelings at all. Ironically enough, almost 20 seasons after Tina became the first one out of Survivor All-Stars, she was once again on a tribe with Rupert on the Loved One season, Survivor Blood vs. Water. 
Well, they were on the same tribe for maybe five minutes, before he became a first one out in his own self-inflicted right. During an opening twist that demanded both tribes vote somebody out immediately, unknowingly sending them to the mandatory limbo land known as Redemption Island, with the victim's loved ones given the opportunity to take their partner's place in purgatory. This was Vetus's first full day of Survivor, and he was one of the people responsible for voting out Rupert's wife, Laura, and therefore one of the people responsible for Rupert's subsequent elimination. So what do you remember about your first day? Uh, it starts off in such a dramatic way with, you know, uh, vote somebody out, send them to Redemption Island, whole deal, and you don't even know that's exactly what you're doing at that point. I know it was a really early start as well. What do you remember about that first day? Well, I remember we had this, that day zero. You know, they took Arif and I, when they took us into this little jungle area, and it's okay, you're gonna spend the night just here, you and Aris together. I was like, what? What are we, what are we doing? Just Aris and I? So me and Aris and I, we sleep in the jungle, we wake up the next morning, and they take us out to the beach at sunrise. You know, Probe says the words, welcome to Survivor, the butterflies, you know, goosebumps. It was, I mean, I'm such a big fan of the show. That moment when he introduces the game, and even every subsequent season that I've watched that happen, I, I get those feelings back again. It was one of the greatest moments of my life, such elation. And immediately following is, and you're going to vote somebody out right now, which was an awful feeling, especially, you know, not knowing any of the people I was going to vote out. We had to circle up and vote somebody out. And I remember specifically what happened. I had been making eye contact with a few of the guys at Ponderosa. And we circled up and we're, I didn't know what name to write down. And Brad Culpepper, his eyes look up at me, and Laura, um, Rupert's wife, was standing right next to me. You know, you can't really point across the circle, so I just kind of point right next to me, like, oh, not Laura. And I think I made eye contact with Sierra as well, or somebody else, I forget who it was, like, just kind of pointed next to me, vote out, vote out Laura. And we got enough votes to vote Laura out. And it was, it was sad, man. Like, I was bummed for her chances as well. Nobody wants to be voted out person. Going into this game, that's everybody's biggest fear. Just make me not the first one out. So we knew that immediately someone's worst fear was going to be realized. And it was just, wow. It was, it was, it's, it's hard to, to put that on somebody, you know? It's not fun. Blood versus water is something of a nexus point for first ones out. It's hard to even identify the first boot from that season. Is it Candace Cody or Laura Boneham, who were both the first ones voted out of their tribes? Is it Rupert? who took Laura's place and became the first person fully eliminated from the game just a few days later? Is it Marissa Peterson, Jervis's niece, the first person voted out at a traditional tribal council that season? And then there's outside of the season, where you have Tina, who was the first one out from Survivor All-Stars, and you have Vetus, who was the first one out from Survivor Second Chance. And there's Sierra Easton, famous for voting out her mom and drawing rocks on Blood vs. Water, blasted out in an early merge idol play during Survivor Second Chance, only to become the first one out a full year later on Survivor Game Changers, the most recent season to film in Fiji prior to Triple H. So about a year later, like uh, I think it's you know two seasons later, somebody else goes home first, and it's somebody who you played with in two seasons previous. Uh, you didn't get to play with her on Second Chance, but you knew Sierra very well. What was it like for you when you found out that Sierra had gone home first on her season? I felt for her. Anybody who goes home first, I, I just, I know the feeling inside of me, and I. I empathize with that feeling of disappointment. And Sierra, it was her third time playing. 
and she had done well the first two times and it doesn't really matter how well you've done those first two times she still had to suck it up and be the first boot that being said she she seemed like she had a pretty fun group of people on her ponderosa those, that group of first uh, that group of that was voted off pre-jury seemed like it's a pretty rad group A new rad group of pre-merged castaways is about to get in formation, beginning with the first one out from Survivor Heroes vs. Healers vs. Hustlers. Indeed, that person was just voted out 30 minutes ago, as I'm standing in the middle of Tribal Council on night number three. Tribal Council is a thing of odd beauty. It's a place where legends are born, where hopes are crushed, where dreams are realized, and often turned into nightmares. It's an intimidating place to behold. At least it is these days. Back in Sonia Christopher's day, it wasn't as intimidating as the journey to Tribal Council. The hike there took, gosh, I think it was an hour and a half, maybe. It was a long, it was a long hike. And it got dark uh, while we were en route. We were stopped twice by these six-foot-long sea crates, poisonous sea, uh, snakes, these great big snakes. And we tried to wait them out because you don't want to infuriate them. <laughs> and the first one we did, and it crawled away. And the second one, it, kept, it was there across our path. And uh, there was a Malaysian guide who was leading us from our beach to this distant tribal council. And... Uh, he finally threw a stick at it, and the snake went on its way. But there were real dangers <clears throat> there. So, but when we came to this, this uh, to what was tribal council, you could see these these lights in the jungle, you know, sort of. And and then it 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 was like, oh my gosh, this looks like a, a stage set or something, you know. A, in a movie, and it was, I suddenly realized this could be a, a program, you know, this was, uh, you know, it was going to be a TV show, they said, and it was so hokey to me, it was, it was sort of, it was unreal, because I had been living for three days just with the idea of how do we physically survive, and uh, so it was, <laughs> I, I apologize CBS, but it was almost laughable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and now, I, you know, I, I, of course, I've seen the program since then, and I understand why they do it. Um, by the way, it, they're rather ingenious, these tribal councils, because there are no cameras that show. And, you know, you're, you're not aware that you are being filmed, but, of course, we know, <laughs> we know these are filmed, these tribal councils. The modern tribal council is built to bring the survivor into the adventure, to give them the sensation that they are in a universe of their own, one world apart from the real world. The tribal council of Survivor Triple H is the fourth to exist in Fiji, the third to exist here in three seasons, and it won't be the last. It's built in tribute to the island nation and its rich history, with authentic materials from the Fijian sugarcane trade found throughout the space, including railroad tracks that run through the temple. It's here on the tracks that I stop for a conversation with Dax Poynton, 
the visionary art director who has worked on Survivor in some capacity since the third season and has designed his fair share of tribal councils. There's no one better to guide you through what it feels like to stand in the thick of this bittersweet build, the place that will eventually claim the names of all but one of the 18 heroes, healers, and hustlers, the place where one of those castaways has already lost their life in the game. So where are we? Uh, we're in Fiji. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Fiji. Beautiful Fiji. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing here. Um, I mean, it's it's probably the best backdrop for Survivor that you can imagine. The clearest water, the most angry storms, um, the thickest jungle. It's just all here. It's It's incredible. I mean, it's... It's, it's a real test of a true survivor out here. Um, tell me about this tribal council set. You know, every year there's so much thought that goes into the art design uh, of tribal council and just the art direction of survivor in general. What's going on here with this tribal council? Uh, well, this tribal council, we sort of, we, we decided to go uh, back in time a little. The, you know, it's, we've been a little bit contemporary before, but this... This time we went back through uh, a little bit of Fijian history and we started to get into um, a bit of a, a shipping trade uh, kind of theme and an aesthetic of like almost like a, uh, a spice trade or an East India trader kind of thing. Um, there was a, a, a pretty big trade uh, industry between Fiji, India and therefore, you know, England. So we played upon that a fair bit, you know, eight, between about 18... You know, 1860 to the early 1910 or something like that. It was uh, it was it was a big deal. You know, a lot of sugar industry was being you know traded between there, and that would that would end up in England. And you know, that was just a perfect backdrop to to play upon. Uh, you know, old Art Nouveau kind of style aesthetic, um, a little bit of a warehouse kind of feel, ship parts and items and and things like that and that's why it looks like we're in a in a in a jungle setting where there's a a warehouse that's full of sacks of things and crates it's it's overgrown with vines and it's it's like something you would stumble upon if you you really were shipwrecked somewhere and you walked up a beach and here's this crazy place with train tracks and it, it was really fun yeah can you explain the train tracks to me well, the train tracks... Which we're standing on right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. These are actual sugar industry train tracks too. So we, we source these from uh, a disused factory now that's uh, in, close in the mainland. So, uh, you know, they, they had to get these carts to go out into the fields uh, with these little train carriages, which are also on set here, fill it up with, you know people would cut the cane and they'd fill up these carts and then push push the carts back to where a little train would come you know so we incorporated them into the set to give that feel of of uh of you know produce coming in you know this little trains here are covered in boxes and and bags and stuff like that so that's why we incorporated in here and it's just a, a, a perfect you know walk in walk out situation so yeah, it worked really well. How much research goes into something like this? I mean, you really have to, you know, really study up. Yeah, we uh, we spent quite a 
quite a long time looking into this and and also some of the uh, iconography and the and the the motifs and stuff that we wanted has a bit of a an Indian flair to it as as well as you know, with a Fiji you know backdrop because um, we really had to find out you know what what part of those things came here um, what kind of era it was what other things were going going on at that time you know what sort of ships were happening what sort of industry uh, just to make it as authentic as we could so I mean there's a fair bit that goes into it I mean we're, we're, we're prepping uh, months in advance I mean this 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 was already thought of you know last year you know last so, year yeah we, we, we were already starting to while you were already here in Fiji yeah yeah amazing yeah so, so that's how far in advance these kinds of things have to be planned out well yeah I mean it is I mean you, you look at this set and obviously it takes a long time to do you know there's there's you know almost two months worth of, of build here so you know and then before that there's plans to be built and there's people to gather and we have to do our research to see if we can even source some of these things that we want to get because we're really remote here and we can't just go down to the local place and buy whatever we want you know we want to make sure that we can there's get, no home depot there's out no here in the moment here, no. I mean, where, where are you going to get it sent from you know it's, it's too far from anywhere so uh we have to make sure that we we've got the the local guys that can build it and the, the materials to build it and all that sort of stuff so yeah I mean we were lucky that we were here we had a little bit of you know preparation from before but uh, it's, a, it's a whole new it's a whole new ball game now so you know we've we got to do the research otherwise it just doesn't get done in time why is it so important to you guys that this is authentic like that this is you know these are tracks from Fiji I mean you could you can imagine the scenario where there's like the Disney worldification of it right yeah I mean we we do a little bit of that but I mean that's really just to fill in the blanks because I mean we've we've got contestants here that they're living something they're living a dream and we have to suspend the like the the disbelief so that they they believe what's happening is happening you know when the biggest kick that we get is when they walk into tribal council and their mouths drop open and they're looking around and they're like you know wow look at this place and you know if if it's as real as possible then that's why we go that extra effort um, we don't want them to to look at the train track and kick it and it's and it's wood, or and, and painted. You know, we want it to, you know, they want we want them to feel the rust on it. We want them to 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 feel that the vines around them they're real. You know, it it, it makes a difference. It's like why they live out on the beach. You know, living on the beach it's real, and you know, that's why the show's so great is because they believe in what's happening to them. The ancient voices echoing throughout Survivor history extend beyond the players themselves. Dax, for instance, is one of many on the Survivor crew who has been here since almost the very beginning. In fact, some people have been here since the very beginning. We wanted to see how the three different teams... Hey, excuse me! We're busy in here! Can't you see the press is here? Wow! Unreal! That's John Kierhofer, known around these parts as JBK. He's the mad scientist who builds Survivor's Challenges, a role he's held since those very first days back in Borneo. 
When he's not working on the field building and testing out challenge structures, Kierhofer is busy dreaming up new brain and backbreakers from the comfort of the coolest location on location, the challenge office, a dorm room-sized space with dorm room vibes, covered in rock and roll posters and filled with rock and roll music. In between turns, utterly annihilating each other in round after round of darts, Kierhofer and his team, including Anthony A.B. Britton and Christopher Marchand, a.k.a. Millhouse, use this office space to make sure the trains are running and the ideas are flowing as freely as an ice-cold Fiji gold. The ideas, by the way, are figuratively and literally all over the place. See all those blue cards up there? Yeah. Those are just elements. Okay. You know, we'd like to see an element of uh, a tiki or a big totem being dragged by a rope. Uh, we want to see an element of a, a tall rope climb. I saw this cool uh, military obstacle course with a big tripod and a, and a rope climb in it. Um, ebb and float. That's a, a challenge, uh, a, a water idea. Cool. Um, Where did the ideas start? Because there's the names are always punny. Does yes. it begin with a pun? Sometimes they do. Like uh, in China, I wanted to do one called Peking Duck. And so we came up with this whole challenge. We even tested it where we uh, we built like a crates and they were just like kind of throwing uh, dodgeball style, throwing things. So you'd look up over, you'd peek, and then you'd duck. So you're peeking duck. And uh, that didn't really go anywhere. Born and raised in Connecticut, JBK became one of the most important and consistent chefs in the Survivor Kitchen due to his earliest days as a television fan. How did you get from Connecticut boy to John Kierhofer's Survivor Challenge Master? Uh, the late, great uh, Gary Marshall created Happy Days. And when I was a little kid, I loved sitcoms. And I saw behind the scenes, I'm a little kid watching Fonzie and, and Potsy and, and Richie playing softball, you know? And, and, uh, and Gary Marshall was talking about what it is to be a television producer. They said, what is it? And this is back when we had three networks. There, weren't, there wasn't all these uh, YouTube behind the scenes things. And, uh, and he talked about what it was to be a TV producer and making these worlds. So I thought I was going to be the next. Mork and Mindy was like the greatest show in the world for me. Nanu Nanu. Nanu Nanu, Shazbot. Yep. And I thought uh, I loved writing and I liked being creative. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. So from then on, guidance comes, what are you going to be? TV producer. I want to be a TV producer. And it took a real left turn when I got into you know game shows and I had a carpentry background. So and then here we are. So you've been with the show since the start. Yes. Um, what do you remember about the Borneo days? I guess like in, to like contextualize that against now, night and day, right? Like a, almost a completely. I mean, really, well, a in the Borneo days, show. we didn't have time to do this. In the Borneo days, I mean, the Borneo days, we had we have a, a crew of over three hundred now, and back then I think we had eighty, including locals. Wow. And uh, and we did everything. We didn't have a dream team. Uh, Mark Burnett and Jeff and myself and all the producers carried camera gear through the jungles. We t we tested all the challenges ourselves. We we didn't have anybody to test or rehearse challenges, so we went out and, and did it. And Mark Burnett and our co-EP at the time, uh, a guy named Craig Pelligian, were the two most competitive guys I ever met in my life, and uh, we we just had to go for it every day. It, it was super fun. These days, Kierhofer tests out challenges with the assistance of the Dream Team, effectively Survivor's internship program, filled with super buff young bucks who run challenges to make sure they're up to snuff for the players with the actual buffs. Among other odds and ends, too. 
Back in Borneo, the Dream Team wasn't even a dream yet, with Kierhofer and the rest of the crew taking on all of these duties on their own, including test running challenges. But oh my god, it, and then we raced through the jungle. We had these jungle races. There was one, do you remember the one where... The Blair uh, Witch Project one? No. The, the, med, was, the rescue one? Rescue yeah. mission, it was called. Yeah. And we hung people in the trees. And then you had to race through with a stretcher to bring somebody out. And I was on Mark's team again. And it was always, Mark was the captain of one team, because he was a, a British paratrooper, you know, military. And Craig Pelligian was a United States Marine. And so they had this competition that continues today, I think. But they had this competition, and man, we we were flying through the jungle. We got so scraped up and banged up, and we had, and unfortunately, we put the, like little little people, little girls, in our, in our uh, stretchers, banging, dropping them. We go, go, drag them, drag them. Oh, it was it was so fun. It was just so. And then we have to do that, and then we come home, and then we have to think of what we're doing the next day, and the next day, and the next day. It was it was it was a blast. It was, it was really on the fly, probably back then too, right? Mark had a, a very, very clear vision of how it was panning out. But we things had, a, had to be flexible. We, we had sure. a list. Oh yeah, we, it had to be flexible. And but we, uh, you know, we had our itinerary and we had to stick to. We didn't have a, we didn't have a copy machine. Uh, we didn't have. There's no computers. There was one phone on the island. That was the big. Uh, you know, we we talk about it all the time. You know, we had one phone. So an email back in 2000 was very new anyway. So if you were going to write an email, you had to write it offline, and then. Then you would get a turn, and you'd have like two or three minutes. Because back then, remember we used to have long distance charges. Back then, it was like this big deal to like be able to send out your emails, send and receive emails. And uh, yeah, it was it was a uh, super super fun. It's April fifth, twenty seventeen, at the time of my conversation with Kierhofer. Hours before the first one out, we'll walk into Tribal Council for the first and last time. Day three, in other words. I'm not sure how many days into the process this is for JBK and his team, but safe to say the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of a lot. Where does the the year begin for you guys? Because you guys, many of you, if not all of you, you guys came out here in February? Yeah, we came out in early February. Uh, uh, Millhouse and I start back in the office. Christopher Marchand and I start back. You don't need to be so formal. <laughs> it's Millhouse. So you guys, you, you come out here in February, but you start earlier. Right? I mean, you're, you're in the, the, the idea phase. the first week in January. Okay. Yeah, we start the first week in January, and we basically spend uh, five to six weeks in Los Angeles, in a room with our friends, coming up with basic ideas. The, the whole thing starts even earlier in November when we come out on a scout. Yeah. And we scout the location. You know, a bunch of us come out, and we see the location for the first time. And as you're looking, you say, oh, we got this kind of, we, we take an assessment of the terrain. We got this kind of water, we got this kind of land, uh, we got this kind of culture. Uh, the first time in a new place is always something cultural. And, uh, and so we start formulating from that. Yeah. And then, uh, then we get together in Los Angeles and we come up with a really good foundation uh, for challenges. We fill out a full grid, uh, always some classics in it. And uh, and then more classes come in as we test the new stuff and it <laughs> then it gets shot down in flames. <laughs> um, and then uh, and then uh, we just go run and gun and, and make up things while we're here. Also, how um, 
how helpful is it for this season? You've been through Fiji before. I mean, you'd been through Fiji long ago, but that's mm-hmm. night and day that compared to where you guys Fiji, are. Yeah. May as well be a different place. It was. Uh, I mean, literally a different yeah. place, a different country. Um, does that does that help because you know the area? Oh, it helps for this year so much, and because uh, we're all so in tune to it, and because a big part of our generally in the last you know seventeen years. A big part of our job when we first get there is finding locations to do challenges. Hiking through six foot tall grass and through jungles and, and going and exploring every bit of water we can. And we spend weeks trying to figure that out. We come here and we said, okay, uh, let's use this location, that location, this location, that location, send somebody out to clear them after the overgrowth. And we can spend more time thinking about challenges. Yeah. One of the key people responsible for scouting locations for Survivor is yet another person who's been with the show since the very beginning. Co-executive producer Jesse Jensen, formerly of the art department, whose present primary purpose involves finding locations for Survivor to film and maintaining relationships with the people and the agencies in the region hosting the show. Right now, that means a lot of working with the Fijian government. It also means working with old friends, even family. Talk about ancient voices. Jesse is one of two Jensen brothers on the Survivor crew, the other being Zach, who co-runs the art department alongside Tribal Council mastermind Dax Poynton. Jesse, Zach, and Dax all grew up in Australia together. We come from the Sunshine Coast. It's a small surf farm community, I suppose, north of Brisbane and Queensland, Australia. Uh, We grew up, everyone jokes at home that we grew up playing in the bush, making puzzles, hiding hiding treasure, drawing maps to it. No one jokes that we got the job that we used to practice for when we were kids, along with uh, Dax, who uh, we've known since I was a baby. Yeah. So the three of us doing it. The Jensen brothers have a nickname for Dax, by the way. It's a name he shares in common with a previous Survivor player, someone who played the first time the show filmed in Fiji. You grew up with Zach and Jesse. I spoke with them Mm -hmm. earlier today. Why was your nickname Boo? <laughs> my nickname Boo was because uh, my folks uh, used to just say that to me, and I used to giggle and laugh, and so it stuck. And they still call me that, so it's kind of weird. <laughs> the Jensens and Dax used to play epic games in their neighborhood when they were kids, paving the way for the epic game they would help shape in their later years. My dad keeps finding money. Like we, used to, <laughs> we used to get this fake money from uh, from town from the Chinese stores. I think it's actually money is supposed to burn for the dead, but it's, uh, it's probably disrespectful now. But like, we didn't know at the time. We just buy these big things of money, put them in chests and hide them under the house in different spots. So Dad used to always, when we lived in that house, he'd be fixing something up, like, and he'd find this chest full of money still. Yeah. I don't know. Spray painted gold or whatever. We, used to, we sort of planned them sometimes. We had a, sort of a bunch of friends up the road, and, and we'd both have our teams, so to speak, or tribes, maybe. Sure. <laughs> gangs. <laughs> uh, gangs. They were gangs at the time. And, and uh, we'd sort of, you know, we'd have stashes of, you know, rotten fruit ready to throw and, <laughs> or booby traps in the bush and treasure to find and we'd have this whole adventure sort of worked out and we'd be against each other, but but friendly, friendly way. It was it usually, it was, uh, it was pretty fun. So there was some challenge design to it as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Crazy stuff that never make a show sometimes. Even just on, on the side of it, we, we cut both ends off a tank uh, and we just rolled it down the hill inside it. <laughs> flying through the grass until we hit big enough saplings that it'd stop us. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, those things you do with Crazy kids are ridiculous. So you went out and you did Survivor, and then you yep. came back and you said, Zach and Dax, you guys, have to, you guys have to come out here. How did you explain to him what the, what the premise of it was and, and what the allure of it was? Well, it already aired 
I didn't think it was going to do any well because I thought it was a crazy American TV show that I wouldn't like. Yeah, was that your first impression? <laughs> like, even while you were out there, while it was happening? Oh, yeah, anyway. it was mental. The, the press turned up when I was out there the first time. I was painting with a shirt off, and they turned up. one of them turned up with a beekeeping outfit because I was so scared of like mosquitoes. <laughs> I'm like, God, these Americans are crazy. <laughs> so, so Things little, have only gotten worse, honestly. It was all a bit crazy, but when they got back to post, obviously they put it together. It was pretty awesome. And you watched it get strength to strength when we were in Australia. But we... Wasn't, we weren't sure if we were going to, I was at an art department, so we weren't sure if it was going to, you know, fly for up. us or not. Yeah. And our boss was, uh, you know, it was our production design boss, I suppose, that was the one that would have to get a job for him, not anyone else, but, and we didn't know if she was going to get come back or not. But she did, and it came to Australia, so that was perfect timing for us, because they could only take so many uh, international work or American workers to, to Australia, so right. it had to be Australians. While Jesse was finding success on Survivor, his brother Zach was carving out a destiny of his own in a galaxy far, far away. Let's not yada yada past the Star Wars thing. <laughs> I've heard a little bit about this. Of course, I'm a Star Wars fan. So can you tell me a bit about that and, and how that came together? Well, that was the opposite. That was Zach. Oh, I got Zach a job. Well, you you had to, you, okay, yeah, so, so I, Jesse sort of said to me, the film industry's been great, come down to Sydney, it's good, it's good fun. I'd been hanging on the beach and living with Dax up on, up, up on the Sunshine Coast. Oh yeah, sounds like a great idea. So I headed off just as Jesse got this strange gig on an island in Borneo <laughs> working for some weird American show, blah, blah, blah. So I, had, yeah, I went and lived in his room in Bondi and, and used his contacts to get into uh, a, little, a little gig that was inside the, the studios of Fox when Star Wars were filming. So he had a few connections in there, but I, so I managed to use that to just get to the construction managers and basically uh, sit, sit in their face and talk until they offered me a job. But they, they eventually did and said, yeah, what do you want to do? Well, I was like, oh, I've never been in the industry before, but I can, I'm good with my hands and I'm, I'm, my old man's a builder and I'm sort of, you know, had some, some, some of the skills that Jesse also has had, uh, had growing up. And so managed to get a job as a set carpenter. And because I wasn't that uh, experienced in the industry, they had me setting up people's workshops, which was you know some pretty interesting to me because there was all these crazy special effects and all these different departments that are on a Star Wars movie. And I was sort of helping them all by, you know, what do you guys need? And I had a little crew and we'd make stuff. And, and so when Jesse got back, he had plenty of contacts anyway to get into the industry and, you know, hey, my brother's back in town, he's super, super savvy, set carpenter, and yeah. came in and got a job immediately building, uh, what were you building the Spaceship. Big spaceship. Yeah. Which solar, one? Solar sailor. Count Dooku's uh, yeah. solar sailor. Yeah. yeah it's it's cool. a cool ship. Yeah, it's full size, same size of a bus. Yeah. Worst job I've ever had. There's <laughs> <laughs> like so much dust and fiberglass dust and... Oh, yeah, yeah, it was impressive though, it was a good build. Yeah, it was a good build. But anyway, somewhere so, along the way, you become Jedi. Well, yeah, so that was, uh, I've been, I guess, doing a lot of favors. Well, I'll tell you, this is funny. Because okay, yeah. I'm sitting at home, and I'm like, just got back from this horrible job. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is terrible. Actually, at that, that stage, I was doing a commute from another job. And it was a long commute. And I got home, and Zach's like, hey, I'm a Jedi. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay. He's like, <laughs> like, no, I am, I am. They're going to give me this role. He told me the story about how they needed a replacement for this character as an English guy played and had the mask and he's got the same facial structure and they talked to him and said, yeah, you got it, you got it. I'm like, oh, great. You've been here like two months and you're a Jedi. I'm, <laughs> I'm, commuting, I'm, commuting, I'm commuting two hours each way to my, you know, my job, like telemovie. And then, and that was cool. But I was happy for him, obviously, because everyone wants a brother that's a Jedi. 
And then so I end up, yeah, then I got the job. After that job finished, I went and started working in, in the studios in my shitty job while he's practicing being a Jedi. And then, yeah, then one day you come, no, then you came home another night and said, I got two parts. I got two, um, they got, they me, George, Lucas, George Lucas spotted me walking around with my dreadlocks and everything and he's, he wants to develop a character around me. It's like this. Jedi with dreadlocks, blah blah. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> and then, like, about a week later, I was working away in the workshop, and he came running, running in. He's like, quick, 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 come now. And we've just found out both my characters are in the same scene, and so they, I can't play both of them. And I've told him I've got the perfect person to play the other one who's got the same face as me or whatever else. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I ran up there, and they. Check the mask on me, and they actually said yeah, it fit, fit, you fit, better fit, to make fit me better. And so they, uh, there you go. That's how yeah. I became a Jedi. Well. And what, what are the official names of these characters? Um, I'm Stacey Tim, and my character is Kid Fisto. And you're the one who gives the the force push and the grin in the arena. Smiling right. Jedi. It's a, yeah. it's a classic moment. <laughs> Best part of Attack of the Clones. <laughs> Find yourself at the right Star Wars convention, and you might meet the artists occasionally known as Kit Fisto and Stacey Tin for yourself. But those occasions are rarer and rarer these days, as Zach and Jesse find themselves busier and busier and busier than ever before with Survivor, a world Zach entered during the show's second season. Oh man, I remember Dan and I both, uh, Dan Monday and myself both sort of talking about, wow, this is like, it's like a, a free, exciting health camp where you get to make a bunch of fun stuff. Man, we pay to do this. We're getting paid. We're getting free food. We get to do all this stuff. It's so amazing, man. We're buzzed. We uh, were both, I remember just, just loving it and being very grateful for just getting us on and the whole crew was there and John Kerr when he was uh, young and fit. Still doing his like yeah, pumping everyone up. You guys are now on this American TV show that's the greatest in the world and all this guys are well, this is old fellow. <laughs> still has the same energy, it's great. Yeah. Right, it hasn't yeah. changed, I don't think. Yeah, so well, we were buzzed and back then it was like season two, wow. Season three, that'd be crazy. So when we got the call from Kenya, it was, uh, it was holy mackerel. Here we go. Yeah, because I mean, it's it, you know, Borneo is one thing. It's like its own totally different show, basically from from the rest of it. Then season two is a hit. It's in your backyard. So was was season three going to Africa? Was that almost a moment of like, yeah, this thing's rolling. You know, yeah, Survivor totally. might be a thing. Well, especially for me, because I went from props maker for season one, and then I came on as art director for season two. And then so I was in charge of the whole crew and then so then I was crewing up and part of the team that scouted Kenya and I was, I was part of the team then, not just a, a, a worker ant, you know, right. it was cool. And then I went to America to work on the finale for the Australia, yeah, that's right, after the African Scout. So it was cool and working with all these guys to come over and actually travel overseas for work was awesome. What was it like growing up with those guys and then converting that into, you know, your careers have been alongside each other at this point? Well, it's, it's kind of funny because this is what we did when we were five years old or whatever, you know. We'd run around, uh, and I'm, well, I'm talking in the, in the 80s, you know, running around in, in their, their back farm, uh, building, you know, wooden structures that were our little, cub, you know, cubby houses, our little clubhouses. Uh, up in trees and doing stuff like that and then we would make little bows and arrows for ourselves and and do treasure maps and we'd hide each other's stuff and we'd have to each discover things and then somehow people liked watching that not that we had anything to do with it but 
we somehow fell into being able to work in that exact thing that we used to play as kids. See, now this is what's so fun. I mean, we can tell, like, as I'm, so as I'm sitting here talking to you, um, the producer who was on the Hustler Beach, I had a few questions for him, like, hey, just give me an update, you know, here and there on what's going on over here. And so as we're talking, my phone is like buzzing, off, you know, and I'm getting all these, uh, okay, like, you know, like, I, oh, see, I can't tell. I, I have to just describe the look on your face, yeah. though. It's just this big, beaming, proud papa smile has just slapped Matt in the face. He's very happy at what he's reading right now. We will not record what is on this tape. No, but I, I'll tell you this. I'll just say, like, so I got three texts from Joe Leah, one of our producers who's out there right now, and I'm not going to tell you what all the things say, but the very end of it says, we're all set over here, exclamation point. Good day one, exclamation point. So they've been on the beach now for three and a half hours, and we've already got an episode on our hands. That's great. So, so that's a good sign. That's executive producer Matt Van Wagnen, who you've already heard from a few times over the course of First One Out. Over the past couple of years, Fiji has become home for everyone who works on Survivor. But these South Pacific Islands hold special significance for Matt, whose first season with the show was Survivor Fiji, filmed at a location that was a far cry from the Mamanuka Islands where Survivor currently resides, by all accounts. The Mamanuka Islands now are also a far cry from the Mamanuka Islands when Survivor was here a year ago, in the thick of a tropical storm that led to the first ever full-cast evacuation during Survivor Millennials vs. Gen X, and left so much devastation in its wake that it actually informed the shipwreck art design for Survivor Game Changers. A year ago, uh, not only were, were, I mean, there was actually islands where, the, where, um, where that we were planning on shooting on um, that uh, were basically stripped. Like literally there were trees where sand during the storm was picked up and they sandblasted trees and all the green was off and it was basically you walked up to this island and it looked like a bomb had gone off and we couldn't shoot there. And so now we're able to shoot in these locations and it's fantastic, it's beautiful. There's more wildlife, that's the thing. I mean, there's more birds, there's more bats. It's, it was beautiful then and it's like, it's beauty on steroids now. I mean, it really is an awesome place. And, and what's been great about it for, you know, I, I, or what's felt a little different for me is last time we um, were always, you know, we were trying to kind of make up for this cyclone. You know that put us behind schedule, and we were always we were having to really hustle, and there was a lot of people who were here. You were the hustler tribe. Yeah, we we but you know we were it really felt like that. But uh, now that we know this place and that we've had the cooperation of this of the weather and the survivor gods, um, it's going so smoothly. Um, it's 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 almost eerily calm how how great everything's gone for us here. Van Wagnen's job on Survivor is to track the story of the season refining the narrative for your television viewing pleasure, which involves constant communication with the producers on the beach. Most nights, his office becomes the site of the download meeting, where various crew members congregate to discuss the day's dealings between the castaways. To be a fly on that wall, because even without those granular details, I can tell you this, there are few things more enjoyable as a Survivor fan than talking about Survivor with Matt Van Wagnon. For somebody who is somehow wandered into this podcast, uh, who is curious about checking out Survivor again for the first time in a decade, or maybe somehow never even watched an episode, what is Survivor? 
Well, it's funny on a basic level, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's a, it's a game for a million dollars on an island, you know, and that's the very basic thing. And, and yes, that is true. But, you know, for us, uh, as cliched as it may come off, it is a story of human nature and um, a test of wills. Um, it really is people, people's true characters are revealed on Survivor. And so um, it, it's a drama, it's a comedy, it, it's all those things. Um, I, I, you know, we've talked about this before. I've been a huge fan for years because I loved seeing these characters. And I love, I, the format speaks for itself and it works. But the storytelling um, and the competition, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to define it in one sentence because it is so many different things and it has morphed over the years, you know, I think early seasons we concentrated a lot more on the survival aspect, but we still try and throw those those things in. We don't want to lose touch with what our roots are, um, and different fans want different things. The game has definitely become more game intensive, but just as much as the game has um, evolved when it comes to strategy, I think that the there's the people who are involved in putting it together are also trying to evolve our storytelling as far as personalities go. Yeah, and the other thing is it resets every year. Like you don't have to have watched every single season right. in order to enjoy 35. Completely. So it keeps it fresh for you guys too, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, and that's why, you know, I love new, new when new players come out. I, there's just something fun about watching people because it is this, if you know, if you've been around it enough, you know how much effort goes into it. And we've spent so much time and effort and money into setting up one challenge. And we're doing this for 39 days. There's this 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 game that that plays out before our very eyes, and it's so fun to watch new people discover it. You know, they have an idea of what it is because they've watched it on the show, or they've maybe read something online, or they've listened to a podcast. But it's like the eyes. I mean, watching today. That's what I. You know, watching their faces. Like, wait, okay, someone actually right before we went. This, this won't make air. They go, well, what about um, microphones? Because we do sometimes in challenges have the mic, you know, mics. It's like, Jeff was like, don't fucking worry about the microphones. <laughs> like, we're, we're going to, like, we got this. And like, it's like, okay, well, so I just, you mean I'm actually going to jump over? And it's, it's amazing when you do see someone who's like, wait, so you guys really don't feed us. I mean, we don't really get food. I mean, we don't. I mean, that stuff really, is really, real. It, it's, it's real. And so you see people discover that. You see people... Um, stumble out of the gate you see someone who on day three you're going oh my god they're going to get destroyed out here they have no place being in here in the jungle and they're not keeping up strategically and next thing you know there they are in the finale I mean watching people discover the game and learn something about themselves that's that's amazing I mean I, I could talk about this for a while but like for me I love like someone who has like a, a flawed story someone who um, starts off one way, has has highs, has lows. I mean, that's I think why I always love Spencer. You know, he's had so many highs and lows, and like his playing, but like keeps keeps um, keeps fighting. I mean, it's it is as great as the game itself is. It's the human stories and these characters that make a good season. Matt and I are talking about three or four hours after the heroes, healers, and hustlers were stranded in the middle of the Fijian Sea, signaling the start of the game. We're about to dig into the theme of the season a little bit more, with a couple of observations from what happened during the marooning. Consider this the mildest of spoiler alerts. How did you guys get to the theme of this season? Um, you know, we've had really good luck when we've been breaking tribes up into um, categories that have to do with their characteristics. Um, you know, I, I love the Brains, Beauty, Brawn um, theme. That's worked well. We wanted to do something a little bit different. And one of the things we were looking at is, you know, usually... Uh, 
in, in those cases, it was about the way people see themselves. And we kind of just started off with something um, about the way other people see you. Um, and it kind of started rattling on different ideas and different characteristics that way. Um, and it felt like we had enough space from uh, Brains, Beauty, Bond 2 and Co. Wrong and just um, rattled off this idea. Plus, it's got great alliteration. Yeah. That helps. Triple H. Yeah. <laughs> Triple H. I think that people will be calling it, at least I will be calling it Survivor Triple H. I can, I can understand that. We do have some wrestling fans on the... Uh, on the on the cruise, so yeah, that'll help. I, are you impressed that I knew Triple H was a wrestling? Uh, I'm not a big wrestling guy myself. Oh, so you're just calling it Triple H on your own? No, you I, I recognize H. who Triple H is as a wrestler, okay. and so that does inform it. But okay. I think that people will be calling it Triple H. I don't okay. think that anyone called it Triple B when it was Brains, Bronze, Beauty. Uh, no, it didn't. It didn't have the same ring. You're right, Triple H. So I, right, I, Triple you know H what? is just like a fast way of saying it. I like it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's good. Okay, so you wanted it to be more about how people see them like and and i think jeff said something on the boat about positive attributes was, yeah. was that a part of it too like you know like positive connotations with the yeah and, and not necessarily that any of the others like white collar blue collar no collar that wasn't none of them, those were really negative per se but we wanted to kind of celebrate them a little bit we didn't want people to say just because this was you it's a negative um you know obviously heroes is something uh that everyone looks as, as a positive um, some people will probably wondering about the hustler, but I look at hustlers, you know, Mark Burnett is a hustler. He's a guy who, um, you know, getting the show made was a hustler. Um, so I look at that as a positive. So I, but I do think we wanted to concentrate on it as, as it being a positive thing. The other thing is, what's in, and then the idea that how other people see you, you know, Ben, for instance, who has spent time in the military, he would never say that he's a hero. He seemed he, uncomfortable with it. Yeah, and you know, for him, I think the bigger thing is, is he'd rather be a hero to his kids, you know, which is also something I think that is admirable. And as Jeff pointed out, it's, um, you know, of, of course you'd imagine the guy who's a hero um, would never want to own that label. Do you feel any pressure with a Heroes 2.0 tribe? I mean, we've already got one great Heroes tribe in Survivor history. Do you, now, okay, that probably, I think if you look back at that season, and maybe I'm a little a little biased going into I, the season. I was try. I was yeah. Well, I was all, I was team. Even though I actually was a producer on the beach with the heroes. Um, no offense about any of them there, because like for instance, Sri's one of my favorite players of all time. The villains tribe was just so much fun. The villains tribe is arguably the best tribe in Survivor history. Yeah, of uh, returning players. Yeah, yes, I, I would say I would I would I would probably agree with that. Um, so how did you land on heroes, healers, and hustlers as the three? Uh, how did you de how did you determine that? Was that after you had like basically seen who was coming in, and then those delineations kind of emerged? Yeah, it's always a combination of those things. I mean, really, um, you know, we always say that we try and get the. 20 or 18 best people we can and then you start to see how things uh how, how things fit and we're and, and you know the the casting process is a long process and the um the theme process or the you know the hook of the season that can take a long time too we're always tinkering with it um so how long were you tinkering with this one before you came up with it gosh what was that i don't know it was a long we, we've had a lot of them out there i mean you know some of these names have been here um for uh for months but you know Till we get, I don't. I, I mean, I can't tell you exactly how long it took to actually get it, um, but it, it took a while. I mean, there's there's other ideas that we've been throwing out. I mean, we've also found we've been around for so long that there's stuff that we, you know, in 2009 maybe said, oh, what about this? And something, and everyone goes, oh, come on, we're never going to do that. And there you are, like six years later, and suddenly you're doing, you know, white collar, blue collar, no collar. I mean, right. you, you just never know. I mean, something pops up, and so there's always, um, you know, I mean, we, we we at one point we toyed around with actually doing a heroes villains season um with new players i like that 
But you know, it, it's it's hard to label someone a villain right off the bat. It's bad yeah. enough to give them a red buff, apparently. <laughs> I know, it's so sensible. We'll get into the red buff of it all soon enough. Let's move away from the marooning for a minute and stop down on another set piece you'll see in the season 35 premiere. Or at least a version of a set piece you'll see in the premiere. Uh, can you describe the first immunity challenge of this season? Well, it's not meant for the uh, weak at heart. <laughs> <laughs> Not talking about anybody in this room. No. Of course. No. Okay, we were totally talking about someone in this room. It was me! One of the very best parts about coming out to location as a Survivor reporter is the opportunity to test out Survivor challenges alongside the Dream Team. But it's certainly not the easiest part of the gig, especially for someone like me, who, again, is a couch potato quarterback and not an actual quarterback. Far from it, in fact. And it very much showed when I tested out the first challenge of Triple H. Here's the unfortunate play-by-play from Van Wagnon, which is also going to serve to let you know what the survivors have to look forward to in their first immunity challenge of the season. I'm not as good as Jeff or JBK talking about the challenges, but it starts where they um, run up, uh, run up a, a net crawl um, and have to pull up a cart, kind of like it looks like a cart like out of Indiana Jones, like a little like um, mining cart almost. Um, the tribe hops in, they go down this little roller coaster, a little throwback to Guatemala, and smash into a, um, into a big pile of sawdust. Um, which, which I'm still picking out of my hair. Yeah, so it, looks, it looks so great. I'm going to send you that picture. <laughs> and then um, they have to uh, go up to um, three uh, puzzle tables and pick a puzzle table to, uh, to use. And um, the first tribe to get there gets to pick one. Second tribe has to pick of the of the remaining two, and then the last tribe has to take whichever one's last because each one is different. And they will um, then the hard part begins. They have to actually uh, push it up a large ramp. It's very difficult, physically grueling stuff. Might make you want to puke. Might make make you want to puke. In fact, and then you go up to the top and you have to, to complete the, the the puzzle. But what was you know? I like to give you a little pep talk. I like to see you run challenges. Um, I, I, you've done well in the past. I've never, well, I've, I was going to say I've never lost. I lost once. Yeah. I've lost one challenge. And so um, I was really looking forward to it. I had my camera ready to see you get up to the top and you were saying, yeah, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the uh, maze when we get to the top. And uh, I was so excited. I watched you. You were part of the team. You know, it's a new dream team this year. Young. It's a good squad. They're it's a good fit. Very fit. They give the actual cast run for their money you, in the buff department. You, um... You scampered up to the top of that net crawl. You were in there with everyone pulling the cart up. You hopped in. I was so excited for you. I think you guys were in. You guys were in first place. We got the first table maze. First table maze. Um, so I didn't drag the team down on the running portion. Now, my point of view, I am now up at the top, and I can't see what's going on to get the table maze up to the top of, of the of the tower. And suddenly, I think it was the red tribe got there first. Yellow tribe second. I'm like, what happened? They were in first. <laughs> What's going on? What, they were doing so well. And I see you kind of like, it was like you had been like, you were like getting like, like popping yourself out of a pool. Just kind of like throwing one leg over, kind of like pulling yourself up. And everyone's like, Josh, Josh, come on, come on, do it. And you go, uh, 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 someone else do the maze. I think I'm going to puke. <laughs> of course. I got a great laugh. And the other thing, you weren't joking. There was no there was no laughter. I was laughing. You look over at me and it was a very serious look. Well, Kierhofer had given the pep talk beforehand of like, don't be a hero out here. If you feel sick, just flag it. 
And I'm, I knew that if I had stepped up in that moment to be the puzzle guy, I was like, I was just going to barf on the puzzle. That would have been the best. It would have been pretty It would have been the best. That would have been a legendary moment. <laughs> and those are the moments we live for in Survivor. Yeah, so that happened. Almost died during a Survivor challenge. Well, not actually died, but certainly almost ralphed all over the place. And I'm not talking about Kaiser. Put a pin in that story, by the way. Of course, I feel obligated to point out that the physical discomfort I experienced absolutely pales in comparison to what some other survivors have been through in their time, including members of the crew. Since we're on the subject of challenges, let's bounce back to Kierhofer, who tells me about his worst personal survivor nightmare, with an audio assist from Millhouse. I was mo- one of the many in Cambodia that Dr. Joe... 100% saved my life. John was the closest one to dying out of anybody, including, I hold, really? including contestants in Cambodia. Really? I hold the record in the history of Survivor. I'm the closest that came to dying on location. What happened? I had an allergic reaction to a medication, and my heart rate dropped, and there was a whole bunch of stuff. I was in, in, in the uh, ICU for oh five nights in Cambodia, and I knew, I knew I was in trouble when I was on the boat, and I was like kind of losing it. And Dr. Joe started saying, hey, John, tell, tell me about uh, where you grew up in Connecticut. Tell me about where you, you, where you grew up. And I went, oh, my God, he's making idle chatter to make sure I don't go to the light. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then I'm like, I better just talk. And I got it. Was a, it was a whole myriad. Of, like, a lot of people go through a lot of stuff. But it was, it was pretty intense. Pretty intense is a good way to describe the survivor experience. And a pretty good way to describe JBK in particular. Let's bounce back again. Once more to Matt Van Wagnon for a great take on what it's like to work with Survivor's Challenge Master. It's funny because I, my first job on the show was a producer on the show where, you know, most of my effort went into the life on the beach. Um, uh, It went into, um, you know, them going to tribal council. Um, So, and so when I was promoted, I was kind of thrust into the world that involved challenges. And that doesn't mean I didn't appreciate the challenges before. It just, I got a much closer look into what goes on. And it's, it's insane. It's amazing. I mean, you know, and the fact that, like, JBK has been here since season one and that these ideas keep coming out of his head is, is unbelievable. And the one thing that is amazing is seeing, if you, if you look at the early seasons, see where we are now, the scale is unbelievable. I mean, and it's fun to watch contestants walk up to uh, a challenge for the first time, a challenge that's only going to be run for them. And you get that kind of, like, jaw-dropping moment where, like, Oh my God, what is this and what am I going to do? It's just a, it is an incredible amount of creativity and manpower. I mean, building some of these towers, um, uh, look, the, you know, the, the art behind it and how it all ties in thematically. I mean, just like the little details, these, these little details, there's so many details on these, even on the challenges that aren't necessarily for camera, but it's for the contestants to be, wow, that was cool. I got to see that. That's this little detail that no one else is going to see. I think the the amount of work that they put into it, the amount of thought, um, it, it can't be, it, 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 you, you can't exaggerate. I mean, they really, you know, JBK and his crew and Zach, who, you know, oversees putting these together, they put so much effort into it and so much passion into it. And they love it. Like, I love, you know, it would be, if you were here long enough to not watch the challenge and just watch Kerhoffer's face during a challenge is so much fun because it's almost like watching like 
that like crazy soccer dad watching his daughter out, like kicking the ball around and scoring a goal. Proud Papa. Like, oh, oh, but not just Proud Papa. It's not, no, no, no. It's not just Proud Papa. There's anguish. You know, he's there, he's there ready to yell at the ref. I mean, he's just, and then, you know, she, she hits the game winning shot and he's over the moon excited. Of course, trying to tone it down so we don't, you know, the contestants know how into it we are, being very professional. But um, the, the guy has extraordinary passion for it and still, after 17 years, it's amazing. Seventeen years ago, Sonia Christopher walked up to the very first challenge in Survivor history, Quest for Fire, in which the Pagong and Tagi tribes were tasked with navigating a raft through a shallow portion of the South China Sea, lighting torches along the way, and setting one final totem ablaze. The first challenge in Survivor history was also Sonia's last. I remember that I had the wrong shoes on, uh, <laughs> footwear. Um, it was very exciting. Um, that, that, again, my feeling of excitement. Here we go. And it was, we swam out into the sea to a cauldron of fire. And I'm a strong swimmer, so that was just welcoming to me. Um, but I've got to give you some background here uh, about uh, Reebok, who's one of our sponsors. And they had issued um, beach, uh, a pair of tennis shoes and a pair of beach uh, sandals, you know, like like Tevis, sort of that big clunky stuff, and uh, to us. And uh, when I put mine on, they immediately uh, made blisters over the tops of my feet and around. It was it was awful. Uh, and by the way, when I arrived in uh, in Kotakinabalu at the resort where they placed us, the uh, Producer, some of the production crew said, and I was surprised that they could talk to us, but talk to me. Anyway, they said, oh, Sonia, we threw ours out two weeks ago. You know, but apparently they were rubbing blisters on everybody's feet. But nonetheless, the damage had been done already to my feet. So uh, when, in the sense that I had gotten blisters, they had broken and so when we got the tree mail that day saying it was going to be a beach or a water competition, I thought, oh, well, I should wear these, these, uh, you know, sandals, these beach-type sandals. Uh, now, by then, uh, they were no longer the Tevas, but they were, <laughs> they were still beach shoes. And so because there were blisters on my feet, I also padded my feet with socks so I wore the socks and these sandals that also float if you if one comes up they they float at the top so okay we've swum out to the cauldron of fire we're now swimming in and um, Rudy is behind me and when we got part way in he said Sonia you can touch so I tried to put my feet down on the on the bottom of and uh, my feet wanted to just float up I couldn't uh, I, you know, it was so. I just kept. I went right back to swimming and kicking very hard. And uh, but when we got into waist high water, uh, I had to, of course, get on my feet. And it was like running through water with 
flippers on your feet, sort of like that. So, uh, it, and the uh, others were going pretty fast. They're a strong group. And Jeff had told us if anybody lost hold of the raft, we'd get eliminated. So I was dragged off my feet, and it's, you saw that on the tape, and they played it over and over for days <laughs> when the premiere was shown. It's the most embarrassing moment of my life. I was dragged off my feet, and I had to yell, stop, stop, you guys, because otherwise I was going to lose hold. And they stopped, and at that point, the... Um, the Pagong, we had been uh, a little ahead, and they caught up. And then uh, we, we uh, you know, I resumed my f- footing quite quickly, but we were on the this spit and, and running up the beach lighting tiki torches. Um, so that's what happened. And on the way home, uh, on the way back to our beach, I said to the tribe, I'm really sorry, you guys, I feel like Hostess that, and uh, Kelly Wigglesworth put her arm around me and said, that's okay, Sonia, it could happen to anybody. She was so sweet, and I looked around at the rest of the tribe, and they were looking at me uh, peacefully, if not lovingly, and I realized then I was going to be voted off. A full day later, Sonia's realization became reality, as she became the first one out ever. Her hand clasped around the first of hundreds of torches eventually extinguished by Jeff Probst, a green-behind-the-ears reality host at the time. These days, he's a seasoned pro. We're sitting on the porch of his Fijian home a few hours after the marooning, and it's a small wonder that the man is even awake. The opening moments of Triple H involve the 18 castaways running around the deck of a ship, gathering as many supplies as they can in a limited window of time. There's a hidden advantage somewhere on the ship, a super idol, which means an immunity idol that can be played after votes have already been read, albeit one that can only be played during the first tribal council. Following the scramble, the three tribes are forced to jump from the ship and onto rafts below, where they must race each other to a nearby beach the first tribe to reach the beach and set their designated structure ablaze, wins a pivotal fire-making kit, including a massive bonfire waiting for them when they finally arrive at their camp. A quest for fire, indeed. For his part, Jeff's quest during the marooning required a different kind of fire. The executive producer and showrunner, as well as the host, Probst began the morning and the marooning explaining the rules of Survivor and the specifics of the present situation to the castaways, both in the context of understanding the tasks at hand, as well as in the context of making sense of the situation for the audience at home. Once the players vacated the ship, Probst was on the move as well, deftly disembarking the vessel and hopping onto a speedboat to reach the beach before the tribes. The camera operators and other assorted crew members still on the ship were forced to hit the deck to ensure they weren't in the shot as the three tribes raced each other toward land. As planned... Probst made it to the beach first, hopping out of the boat, sprinting up to the water's edge, firmly in place to call the final moments of the marooning. But first, he had to call out at something else. The speedboat that brought him from the vessel to the beach, lingering too long in the shot. Go, 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 he bellowed, and the boat did as told, out of view by the time of the marooning's conclusion. And from my view, Probst hadn't even broken a sweat. Say what you will about Jeff Probst. You don't have to agree with the man's views of the game. 
You don't have to sign on for the big moves and the blind sides and the other buzzwords. But watching the man in action, there is absolutely no doubt about it. Jeff Probst is a hustler. You are a man of many hats, uh, literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, you, are, you are the host. Uh, you are also the showrunner. And I was really impressed today watching the marooning, how quickly you're able to shift those gears. Because there's a lot going on. You're tracking a lot of action. You're, um, you're talking to the audience when you're talking to the contestants as though they are you know, the characters on screen. Right. Um, but you're also the showrunner when you're trying to draw information out of them or trying to get them to, to calm down and, and listen to the rules because this is about to get complicated. Uh, at the same time, you're, you're speaking to people back on the beach. You're racing back on the speedboat. You're worried if the speedboat is in the shot. How do you keep that sorted? How do you, how do you keep all of those hats on at once? Well, thank you. That was a really nice compliment. I really appreciate that. I think how it happened was so naturally that, you know, I mean, when I met Mark Burnett, I had done some TV, but nothing, you know, really of note. I didn't have any experience doing anything like this. And he believed in me. He just saw something that he thought fit what he was looking for. And from that day, he gave me a voice. He empowered me and said, you're a producer on the show. I want to hear what you think. You have as much you know, impact input as anyone else. So he made me believe that my voice mattered. And then he trusted me as a host, even though I'm sure there were years when he's like, oh my God, why'd you ask that question? He didn't say that. And he just let me grow more confident. And I went through a period where I was probably cockier. Or, I don't know. It's hard to watch the show because I've grown up on it. It's very vulnerable. But at a certain point, he said, well, you know, I want you to run the show. And I felt like it was the right time. I felt like I was ready. I wasn't looking back on it, but I felt like I was. And so now our team is so seamless. I mean, you know, I work side by side with Matt Van Wagen. I mean, we're partners in the show. John Kerhoffer has been here longer than me. Our art department, these guys are insane what they do. I mean, it's so in a sense, it's this greatest gift. You're given this, this train that's already going and all you have to do is just get, stay out of the way. So my brain works that way. I've always wanted to be behind the camera, but I love controlling the story by being in front of the camera. So I get to say the words, here we go. And I also get to be a part of saying, here's how it's gonna look when we say it. Earlier on in our conversation, Probst and I are talking about Mike Zahalski when a helicopter flies by overhead. You want me to wait for that? Nope, it's not okay. part of the color. Um, that, by the way, is our chopper, just so we can paint the picture, <laughs> who is, is just returning from shooting one of the camps. Because what happens is, if we get a call that somebody's fishing or on an idle chase you or whatever. You want that aerial? Yeah, we, the great thing is, we can, you know, a producer can call in and say, hey, I need, I need Cineflex, I need the chopper. And we're up in the air in under seven minutes and at the beach in two or three. And we get to where we get those great shots of somebody like Ozzy spearfishing all alone from the air. And, and it's a, I love that you keep, or keep going with this because the spirit of your interview right now is the spirit of our show. While we're talking, I could get a call saying, we got a problem on at, at the hero camp and I'm out of here. The show never stops. Tribal is not the only thing that's alive on Survivor. Survivor in general is alive. Is alive. And I think people don't get that because a lot of people say, so what are your work hours? I got, dude, they're, they're 12 not, to 12 yeah. for, for several weeks. <laughs> they're, they're none and all. It just depends on the day and the moment. Days ago, the cast of Heroes vs. Healers vs. Hustlers enjoyed a moment with Probst of their own 
When he arrived at Ponderosa via, wait for it, helicopter. Cole Metters describes the moment well. Well, I was chilling in a hammock, and then I kind of look way off in the distance, and I see a helicopter. I'm like, that's the first one of those I've seen here since the whole time we've been here. And then, of course, it keeps coming straight at it, and they make this, like, swoop in at us with the nose and, like, circle around and make this really dramatic landing. I'm like, of course. Of course he would. And then we go into, like, a holding pattern, and they put us all in this, like, these rows of chairs make us look all nice, and then in he comes, and everyone's like, oh, man, this is really happening. And, like, Survivor's, like, starting now. Because you'd met probes before, I'm sure, during casting, right? Right. But it's a different beast when you're out here on the beach and there's Jeff Probst. Totally. In casting finals, you're still not even sure if this is happening yet. And then when he's actually here in Fiji with you, you just watched the show the night before. And then he's starting to talk about, like, the rules of the game and what they want from you. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, this isn't, like, just a maybe thing anymore. This is really happening in the next few days. Jeff's grand entrance certainly made an impression on many of the players, including Cole according to what Joe Mina observed. Well, the funny thing is, I thought he was the, uh, uh, the re- like a recruit. I have, you know, there's recruits, this is part of the game. Um, so I thought he was a recruit, but he's not a recruit. He like, when Jeff came in, helicopter, the big old thing, you know, uh, literally, he drooled. Literally, I'm not lying, he drooled. Seeing Jeff and what Jeff represents, he just drooled. Not everybody was drooling, at least not at the sight of Probst. Here's how Cole describes J.P. Hilsebeck's reaction. When a helicopter flew in yesterday with Jeff Probst on it and everyone's like freaking out, he just sat there in his chair, not even turning around and looking, just like dead to the world. Cole's fellow healer Jessica corroborates the story. So Jeff flew in on his helicopter and so a lot of us were like, oh, Jeff flying in his helicopter. And like a lot of the guys didn't even get up. I'm like, are you insane? Like, get up. It's Jeff. It's Jeff if you didn't know. (laughs) For his part, In speaking with me, JP seemed pretty aware of the power of Probst, as did the other heroes, healers, and hustlers. Jeff is definitely uh, one of those guys who's going to put you on the spot. You know, it's uh, it's going to be you know you're sitting there at travel council. You know, during the challenges and things like that, I like it straight to the point. But when you get to travel council, you got to be able to kind of have your thoughts together and be able to explain yourself because he's going to put you on your spot because you know obviously he wants it for the drama for the show and that type of thing. But you know you just got to be able to. You know, keep yourself together, you know, and not let the, you know, the days, you know, wear on you and just be able to, you know, come back with good responses, you know, and just don't let them get at you. Probst is a pro. Um, he's hysterical. I mean, he, of course, like, for a pep talk, arrived on a freaking chopper. I'm like, really? Is this necessary? Probst is the man. <laughs> he's been through every season. He's the start to the finish. And, you know, he's, he's got a great personality. He's always smiling. And, uh, but I, I wouldn't want to make him mad. I love Jeff Probst. He's great. My kids love him. My husband thinks he's great. So uh-huh. I think he's great. He's sharp. You know, he's going to be like my guru out here. Yeah. Because I know he's going to be pushing my button somehow. You know, um, he's good. He's good. He's, uh, no, I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, come on. It's freaking Probst. Yeah. He's a great guy. I think he's funny. He obviously loves this show. He's been out here forever. And so I guess my, my, the way I see him face to face versus when I watch the show is like very different. He's obviously an instigator. He loves to start shit during tribal. Like that's just his thing. He even likes to start shit during challenges. Like, um, but you know, it's, it's part of the game, I guess. He's trying to hype up the audience and he obviously is super passionate about Survivor. And so you can feel that energy coming from him. What I loved most about meeting Jeff is that he is exactly in real life the same way that he is on TV. Yes. Exactly. 
So um, I thought that was really neat. He's just the same guy. He's just the He's same guy. He's on all the time. What he, how he is on TV is not an act, unless it was an act when I met him, but I don't think so. Um, I will say when I met him at finals and he's looking at me going, Chrissy, Chrissy, Chrissy. I, I had to stop for a minute and say, oh my gosh, Jeff Probst is saying my name. Now he'll say it a lot. There are a lot of warm feelings from the survivors toward the survivor host, which is kind of funny when you stop to think about it. This is the same man who's going to crush all but one of their dreams, snuffing torches left and right over the next 39 days, beginning soon with the first one out. Sometimes the quieter ones get lost in a group, right? Yeah. So sometimes they end up being the ones that go home first, but they're not necessarily the ones that should go home. Does your heart go out to whoever it is that goes oh, home Oh, definitely. First? You know, I'm whoever I... Well, you know what? No, because I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go to the tribal council where I have to be the one writing someone's name down. You won't even be there. No, I'm not gonna be there, dude. I'm gonna fucking pump my tribe up so hard that like when we get to the meeting challenge, we're gonna fucking kill it and come in first and not even have to worry about that. But yeah, I do not even want to think about that situation, be involved in it whatsoever. What, like, hap- I don't... what happens if you are there? And what happens if the worst case scenario happens and it's you? <laughs> How Dude, would that I, would that be the worst possible thing that could happen to oh, you out here? Oh yeah, I would rather get injured, go out injured. I would rather be made a fool of in other ways than go then out go first. first. You yeah. know, it just it would be such a tease, like such blue balls. <laughs> so close, yet so far. Don't think of myself as, oh my gosh, I hope I'm going to get voted off first. I'm still working on that a little bit, right? Uh, A lot of times I put things out into the universe and lately the universe has been answering me, you know, putting me on Survivor, etc. So um, the advice really was, from my best friend at home and then again from Jeff Probst, was don't think, oh my gosh, I hope I'm not the first one voted out, because then you will be. So you've stopped thinking that. Instead you're thinking, oh my gosh, I hope I'm the winner. So now I'm walking around thinking I'm not going to be the first one voted out. Which one of you guys is? My biggest fear is that in sitting here, everybody's like, this guy, we need to fucking get him the hell out of here because we know he's a player. Yeah. He came to play. We know he knows how to solve a Rubik's Cube, even though I don't know how they would know that. We know he's been practicing slide puzzles and can do them in under a minute, right? We, uh, we can just tell that this guy is no survivor. And that would be my biggest fear. Do you have a prediction for who's going to go first? Depends who's on my tribe. Okay. If the guy with the beard is on my tribe, okay. and he is, I know he's the biggest threat in this game, it, it will be my duty to vote him out. I hope we win the first immunity challenge so that's not even on the table. Not even on the table. Oh, that would be devastating. And I feel really bad for whoever that happens to, but I do know that it's not going to be me. Cool. You never want to be the first one to go. Yeah. Is that your number one fear out here? I think my, yeah, honestly, everything else seems like I can handle it. I can take this on. But if somehow it gets out of control right off the start and I'm seen as like a big target, that would suck. How actually worried about that are you? Do you feel like you can at least thread the eye of the needle through three days of the game? Right. It's definitely in the back of my head. However, I feel like I'm enough of an asset right off the start for winning challenges for my tribe or making fire or all the survival skills and getting people through that first step so that they'll keep me around. And then after that, the next goal is the merge. And then, of course, after that, it's one of a million dollars. I mean, I think it should be a fear of everyone's. I think if you're overconfident, that's the first uh, sign that you're probably going down early. Isn't that scary? Is it really scary for you? Is that something that you freak Um, out about? I feel like right now I have more to freak out about 
about besides that because this whole you know situation with me knowing this kid um i feel like my social game though is strong so i think that i hope that people will like me and feel like i can be someone they can trust um i don't worry about it as much as other stuff though i mean being out first but that sucks like all this you know you flew to la you stayed in the hotel you're out here sitting in the heat and <laughs> You have to stay here for, and then you have to stay here after that you know it's it's definitely in the back of my head but i will be surprised if it happens the first person voted out is going to be um i think it's going to be the trish lady the skinny uh short-haired blonde i i mean obviously it depends i mean here's a survivor fact for you since season 26 the winner i'm pretty sure this is right please correct me if i'm wrong um the winner has avoided that first tribal council. So Cochran didn't go to tribal council, Tyson didn't, Tony didn't. I mean, look at Michelle, look at Tony. They avoided tribal council. I mean, we're talking double digit days. That Natalie Anderson, you know, except for the Drew Christie vote off, didn't go to tribal, held her card so close to her vest, you know? I mean, that is vital. And a guy like David who had to go to every tribal council except for one, and then he had to go to another one pre-merge, you know, they're just adding up and he was playing idols. It's just tough. and. Just a hot take, you know, that's, I think, who's going to be off um, pre-merge. I hope that's not, or first one out. I hope that's not the case because she really is excited to be here, I could tell. But it's just the way the game goes, you know. A lot of people look for that, a lot of people look for that uh, weaker person, whether male or female. And I think it, it could be her. Somebody has to go. Are you worried? No. For yourself? No, no, not a chance. Not a chance. I'm not worried about myself at all while we're in groups. Is that um, a nightmare? Honestly, it's not a nightmare. It's not. It's because it's, it's not even a thought. It hasn't even. It literally has not crossed my mind at all. Um, as crazy as it is, it's a game and it can be, um, but it hasn't. I honestly hasn't crossed my mind yet. Call me ignorant, naive, whatever it is. It hasn't crossed my mind. Does your heart go out to the person who goes out first, or is this just all business and you don't even care? <laughs> Man, let me tell you something. There's only a group of people I care about. Right, two of them happen to be literally physically on me. My ink. My family, like my immediate family, my, my sisters, my mom, my dad, my stepmom, and my close friends. My close friends I've had for over 15 years. Everybody else I give two shits about, honestly. I, I could care less how people perceive me on TV, how people perceive me at my job, anything like that. I mean, you're not helping me paying my bills, you don't pay my bills, and I'm not invested in anything except my, my children and my family. So um, my heart doesn't go out to them. Deuces, you know what I mean? It, one victim down, you know? Is that the worst fear? Oh, absolutely. Like, even when I first found out I got on the show, the worst fear was even all the preparation to, you know, besides this week of, you know, what's the word when you try to get into a sorority and they, like, do bad things to you? Pledging? Yeah. Like, you guys haven't done bad things to us, but it's almost like pledging. Oh, it's like hazing. Hazing. Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like we're slowly, gradually getting ready and you guys are going to drop us. You know what I mean? Which is good. I like a little bit of warming up. But even before this, like, getting ready to come on the show, like, you should be preparing. You know, I think everyone probably hit the gym harder. People started doing puzzles. People started, like setting up their own survivor balance beams. I didn't do that. Maybe once <laughs> and, or twice, you or know. Or You know, I started practicing um, just little things. And even that, there were days when I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like, for the thought of what if I go first? But to be honest, 
I would be totally shocked if I went first. I plan on keeping my head down for a while, holding in my personality because it's enormous. And again, I'm not physically the biggest or the smallest. So I think if I work hard, there's no way I'm going home first. What happens if it's you? Then I just become another Asian American woman who was voted off first. There'd be bad optics. It would be very bad optics. But you know, sometimes you break the trend line and sometimes you don't. Is that a fear of yours to be the of first course, one out? Of course, of course. I always consider every worst case scenario. Like even when I was going through casting, like I'm in grad school and I had a plan with school, but it could have fallen through. And so I was imagining this, of course, like up until the deans were like, yep, signed up, like stamp, go. I was freaking out, you know? So I, of course I imagine the worst case scenarios, but I also do, you know, I was saying I wasn't very spiritual, but I do believe in sort of the power of his visualization where, um, if you visualize, you know, not getting better when you're sick, or if you visualize failing, you're more likely to. I don't think it's a causal relationship, but there's probably a correlation. Um, and so, um, you know, if I visual, at the very least, vis I don't think I should play for day 39 on day one, but if at least I visualize day 39 on day one, hopefully I'll be closer to it. Not a bad idea to play for day four on day one. Yeah, let's day two. Let's <laughs> for day two. <laughs> we can start there. Uh, you know, I, that's honestly probably my worst nightmare. If that happened, you know, I'm not even gonna address it if it could happen to me. Let's just go that. Let's just go to somebody else. I feel sad for the person it happens to. Yeah. It's not gonna be me. Yeah. It's not going to be me. One of these people is gonna win. One of these people is going to have gone through all of this. Right. Meeting with you, meeting with the producers, going through casting, right. sending in their clothes. Coming right. out here. God, it's a lot. And they're going to play three days of Survivor. It's tough. It's tough. Um, does your heart go out to the first oh, boot? man. I, I, I have the weirdest role, Josh, because despite contrary opinion, I mean, despite uh, what people might think, I actually love people. I, I love relationships. I love community. I love all of it. I'm so blown away that people will come out and do this. This is so hard i mean you see their bodies up close and they're 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 losing their weight and they have bug bites everywhere and they're starving and yet they've got an energy about them that says bring it on man i want more so yeah for somebody to get blindsided and snuffed and then they look around and they go me out of all 18 me or out of this group of six i'm the one you don't want it's hard not to you know, you, you, you find yourself saying it must have been because I was a threat. I, I said the wrong thing. You have to. You have to protect your, your, yourself. But yeah, I'm snuffing their torch. And in, on one hand, that's the way the game goes. And I have lose no sleep at all. But in my subconscious, yes, there's a part of me going, man, I'm sorry. I know you want to play again. Almost 20 years ago, Probst wasn't sending a subconscious condolence. He was expressing his regrets out loud, moments before reading the very first votes cast at the very first tribal council, where the very first one out ever was about to be eliminated. Sonia Christopher remembers exactly what it felt like in that moment. She remembers exactly what was on her mind 
as Probst turned over that final fateful vote. As he read the votes, and it was three for Sonia and three for Rudy, and then he pulled the last card out and said, first person voted off Survivor, and he turned my name to the group. And my thought was, who was the Judas? And I later found out it was, of course, Susan Hawk. And uh, interesting, if you, Jeff was very sweet, I realize now, <laughs> compared to, I, he, he gave a little spiel about, I realize that you people have done this for, for different reasons in your lives, and uh, you will always have bragging rights, da-da-da-da. You know, it, it was a very gentle way to uh, let me down. I was just, I guess, surprised. And um, having, uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, one good thing about sports, I grew up uh, playing tennis and um softball in a girls softball team beginning in the seventh grade and we learned sportsmanship you know win lose or draw you you're a good sport and so i wanted to i wanted to support my my team even though uh somebody had you know uh, some people had voted me out and uh so that's why i turned and said go get them you guys and then i went down that dark jungle path. The latest person to follow Sonia down that dark jungle path is about to be brought into the light in the next and final episode of First One Out. First One Out. A Survivor preseason podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Josh Wiggler. That would be me. It's a co-production between The Hollywood Reporter and Rob Has a Podcast. Taryn Armstrong is our editor. By now, I hope that you know that he is indeed a robot. Credit for the beautiful music in this episode goes to the great Fijian musician Solo and Sato. And credit for the music in our introduction goes to the great Sonia Christopher. The very first one out ever. Thanks once again to Sonia, as well as to Tina Wesson, Francesca Hoagie, Darnell Hamilton, and Vitas Bushkowskis for sharing stories from their survivor experiences on this podcast. Special thanks as well to the team at The Hollywood Reporter for all of their ongoing support. And special thanks once more to Rob Sesternino and the RHAP family for their support. Special thanks to the utterly incredible Emily Fox, whose extraordinary patience and chill is the only reason why First One Out even exists. Send her some love on Twitter, at Emily. Head to THR.com Survivor for more preseason coverage, including exclusive interviews with the cast members, Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Round Howard, for bonus videos and photos from my time out on location. Subscribe to Rob Has a Podcast at robhasawebsite.com slash iTunes to never miss an episode of First One Out, and to check out some extra interviews as we work our way up to the new season. Survivor returns September 27th, and this podcast concludes September 28th. Next time, on the final episode of First One Out. 
Oh, come on. You don't really think that I'm going to tell you what's happening in the final episode of First One Out, do you? It would be such a spoiler to say anything, to tip our hand in any way about what's coming next. Here's what's coming next, all right? Somebody's getting voted out first, and it's going to be a huge bummer for that person. And I'm going to speak with that person at Ponderosa the morning after that first tribal council. So just use your imagination. There's going to be crying. There's going to be laughter. There's going to be high fives, maybe. So... Get your favorite beverage of choice, grab some pizza, grab some friends, settle in, watch the show, then come back for the final first one out. Coming soon.